0: again, the book of Acts, as you know, we are, are at the halfway point, and so we're taking a few weeks now to step back and to look at some big picture questions, and uh, before we jump into the second half of the book of Acts, I, um, if you saw my post on Facebook or the church's post on Facebook, you know that this morning is a bit unusual. This is not our typical um, custom to take a passage and march through that passage. But really, this morning is kind of a study on Bible study. And I kind of want to give you a little bit of a a peek behind the curtain into my thinking, if you will. And I trust that this morning will be helpful to you as you study narrative literature. And so maybe you have, have questions or thoughts about as we make our way through the book of Acts, how should I be thinking about certain passages? And so, I want to kind of give you some insights uh, that I trust will be helpful to you in your own personal Bible study. Uh, it will probably also help you to understand some of the kind of the homework behind my preaching. Right? When you remember when you were in, uh, remember when you were in like junior high or, or elementary school, and uh, you were struggling in math. You didn't struggle in math. The rest of us struggling in math, uh, and so the teacher would say, "Show your work." Right? They would say, "You know, we not just don't just give me the answer, but show your work, so that they could they could help you think through, you know, how to how to get to the correct conclusion." would never had that problem, but the rest of us, the teacher would say, "All right, show your work," and then we, okay. So this is kind of a show your work, uh, little almost a teaching session. And uh, I want it to be to be like that. If we have time at the end, and you have additional questions, we might have the opportunity for that. Um, but before we do that, um, I have my Bible open to Acts thirteen. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit uh, in the book of Acts uh, as we follow along. But let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help uh, to quiet our hearts before the word this morning. Lord, as we uh, take on this rather practical. Lesson this morning. I pray that you would give us, give us help. And Lord, we, we learn nothing except through the help of your Spirit that you know, really unleashes the word in our hearts. May our hearts be open this morning. And may we consider carefully the right way to approach your word respectfully. Grimm's Fairy Tales was originally known as the Children's and Household Tales. It's a collection of fairy tales that were published in the early 1800s. December of 1812 actually was the first edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales. It was it was compiled by two brothers, uh, Jacob or Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, two German brothers who had collected these together. Now, they, they really hadn't written these stories, but actually it was an anthology. That had been handed down by oral tradition, and in fact, uh, if you look back at many of these, these stories, this folklore that was handed down, it was it was used by one generation to teach another generation about the way the world works. And when they published them, they became a, a quick success, even amidst some controversy. Uh, but the, but the reason. Stories have been handed down from generation to generation and then eventually made their way into this anthology because this is, throughout, throughout the history of humanity, one of the ways that we learn things. In fact, one of the key ways that, that we learn things that, that stick with us in our memory is through the telling of a story. Once upon a time, right? And then when we get to the end, of course, they all live happily ever after. But between those two bookends is usually some sort of a a life lesson. Uh, Something that we can take with us as a principle into life. Because we connect the stories in a powerful way. I was uh, listening recently. interview was the value of telling your client, telling the the potential buyer a story. Rather than just listing, these are the potential benefits to purchasing my product, and and, and these are the problems that you can avoid or that you can solve by by purchasing my product, instead tell them a story. They will connect with it at, at a more basic level, they will understand, they will see with that at a, at a very basic level, at a very meaningful level, because stories matter. Narrative matters. Well, God, in His wisdom, has revealed much about Himself. The closest thing we have to narrative literature, besides the book of Acts, would be the Gospels, which which are not exactly a biography, they're not exactly intended to be history, but they they have a narrative form. Acts is really the only truly historical, and I don't mean by that 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 the Gospels are unhistorical. what I mean by that is the genre itself is the history genre, the narrative genre. Right, so... So here in the in the book of Acts, we have something that is, that is unique and special. So I wanted for us this morning to just kind of stop and think about how do we approach narrative literature. And specifically, how do we approach this book of Acts? It's important how we treat narrative literature. We want to treat it with the proper regard. It is, it is, after all, God's word. So we want to understand it. big questions related to narrative literature, the Bible scholars Is it the norm? Is it is God presenting it as the normal? The norm? Is it normative literature? Should we expect Someone lies to the church. We have several instances of miraculous jailbreaks in the book of Acts. Can we expect God to break us out of jail whenever we are unjustly imprisoned? The normal experience of Christians being in the New Testament. But I don't really think so. There are many things that God did in a dramatic way, even a miraculous fashion, and we see descriptions of them in the book of Acts, right? But we don't really care. doing it now. Well, we know that's not the normal pattern. We know that this is something unusual in this time in history, in this point in God's work with mankind. So it seems fairly obvious to us that God did a certain do I respond, what decisions do I make in response to what I'm seeing here? Um, what challenges us more is is how we as believers should conduct ourselves in reflection on the early church. In other words, should we do that too? When we, when we read something in the pages of, of Acts, we ask ourselves the question, well should I should I be doing that? Should I be Mimicking that, should I, is that something that is, that is prescribed for me? And so actually, that is a word that, again, that Bible scholars will use, right? We have these big $50 words, um, prescriptive and descriptive, right? If you go to the doctor and he writes you a prescription, he is, he's prescribing, he's telling you, this is something you should take. That's a, a prescription, That's an important question, because all Scripture is what? Given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So we're not diminishing that if something is descriptive, it is not profitable. It is still a profit. The question is, in what way do do? prescriptions Approach the text of Scripture, particularly as you approach the book of Acts. Maybe this has been some mystery to you. Um, here's, here's a couple of questions to consider as you see something occurring in the book of Acts. First of all, was it given as a command? Was it given as a command? Is, is this a command that is being given? Okay. I, I would say this. It seems to me that we should, we should pause more. We should think more carefully about the things that are given in the book of Acts as a command than simply the things that are merely described. Now, that doesn't completely solve the problem, does it? Right, because we still have to consider the important questions of to whom was the command given? Was this command temporary for that time period or, or was it intended to be? But, but I think the formulation of something as a command ought to at least give us pause. It, it, ought, to, it ought to cause us to question. So, for example, a command that, that goes all throughout the book of Acts. In fact, perhaps the most common command in the book of Acts is one that we would definitely say is normal day. That is what? Repent and believe. Like this, is the, this is the very heart of the gospel. That that we are sinners, separated from God, that Jesus Christ's completed work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, provides payment for sin, and that payment can be applied to us through what? Through faith and repentance. And again and again and again, the apostles and the and the New Testament church commanded repent. Chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 17, verse 30. Chapter 26, verse 20. Repent. That is still a binding command for all men. Repent. This is the message we preach. And this is at the very heart of what we do. So, of course, we would say that's, that's prescriptive. That's something that we continue to preach. And, of course... In the book of Acts, we also see this second command that's attached very often, close at the heels of it. Repent and be, you remember? Be, what? be baptized. Like, repent and be baptized. So you turn to Christ, and you, you, you recognize your say, you turn to him, you repent and believe, and immediately express that. Testify to that through baptism. And so these commands that are are given to us are are pretty obvious. Some things are given as commands in Scripture that are continuing to be binding. uh, Excuse me, in the book of Acts, that are continuing to be binding. There are other things that are given to a specific person. So, for example, I mentioned a moment ago, Philip. Philip, go to this place. Peter, go see Cornelius. Those are very specific commands that are in a time and place. A very specific application. But I do think if something is given a command, we ought to at least stop and look at it. We ought to stop and think, okay, is this something that is binding for all believers that continue? So that's one That's one question that I'm asking myself as I'm studying the book of Acts. The second question that I'm asking myself is this Was it intentional? And what I mean by that is, did the apostles or, or did the church? Do something intentionally. You say, as opposed to what? Well, as opposed, for example, to, to it just being a product of, of the culture or the circumstances. So some things would have been part of the custom of the day. And they're not necessarily something that the church is doing intentionally. It's just on a part of who they are, right? How do they get to church? So unbiblical. Is no, obviously not. Right? I mean, that's a, its kind of a silly example, but it, it illustrates the point that just because something occurred in in the Book of Acts doesn't mean same thing with communication by letter. Like how did the church communicate with one another? By letter. Mm-hmm. But does that mean that it's unbiblical for us to send an email? So, so, so I'm asking myself the question, is this something that they intentionally made a choice to do, or is this just part of the, the inertia of the culture that they're in, the, the day and age that they're in, the situation that they're in, which really leads me to kind of another related question, is remind yourself that, that the book of Acts really is a time of transition. Right? It, it is really the time when we are moving from the old covenant to God's special work in the church age. And so because of that transitional nature of the book of Acts, we need to be sensitive to how much of this is a product of this transition that is taking place. The church is actually in flux even from the beginning to the end of the book of Acts. Have you noticed that? Let me give you you some some clear examples. Who was evangelized in the early chapters of Acts? What people group? Jews, right? And in fact, until, until the incident with Cornelius... There are no Gentiles saved. Well, obviously, we wouldn't say that's normative, right? This was this was God's plan from all the way from chapter one, verse eight, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, utter, uttermost parts of the earth. So, so there was this ripple effect going out. But in the early in the early chapters, only Jews were evangelized. It wasn't really in earnest that Gentiles were evangelized until this next half of the book that we're, we're getting ready to get to, to chapter thirteen and on portion of the book of Acts. So there's some unusual occurrences that are unique because of the transitional nature of, of, of God's work. And let me give you another example. Um, Paul, how many of you studied the book of Acts, right? Where did Paul always go first when he got into the house? Synagogue. Made a beeline for the synagogue. Right? So that's a fairly consistent so I would ask myself, is this something that Paul was doing just as a result of the context he was in? I mean, the, Jew, the gospel had started with the Jews and is now moving itself out to the rest of the world. It seems to me to be a, a natural expectation that Paul is going to the synagogue as that central point where God is at work in that town. And so then we would have say the question, well, is that like any time you're evangelizing the your city, God will the synagogue. Work, right? Or is it merely describing Paul's strategy because of the context that he was in? You see, you see what I'm getting at? So I'm asking myself, how intentional is this? And then I'm also kind of alluding um, to, to something else we'll get to, get to in a minute. But beyond that, there's things that a, occur in the book. Close attention. You notice they don't stick. So you can take an isolated passage or two or three, and you can say, "Oh, see this? This happened in the in the book, but if you notice it carefully and you follow that trend, you'll notice it doesn't stick." All right. So, give me, give me, again, give you some examples. Um, miraculous signs, speaking in tongues, not normative. Throughout redemptive history, when God was making a dramatic change, that is to say, he's intervening in the story. He's giving new revelation. What happens? He authenticates that new revelation with supernatural work. Well, such is the case in the book of Acts. It's a transitional book. That's why we see a lot of things in the book of Acts as a result of that transitional stage that we don't see continuing. So, for, for example, by and large, speaking in tongues was not actually seen after the apostolic age until the new wave Pentecostalism of the late 19th century. Let me give you another example. Acts 2. Right, we saw this, that the church sold their property. That the people in the church sold their property to provide for the needy among them. But that actually doesn't continue It really doesn't even continue in the early church, I and mean, if you look at First Corinthians eight and nine, which was written probably within ten years, the church is actually not told to sell their goods, but merely to do what to give systematically, to give cheerfully. Right. So if you if you choose to sell your property and give to a need, then so be it. But I don't think that you can go to Acts two and prove that that's binding. Some are going to say, well, the church in Acts, another example, the churches in Acts met in houses. So we should too. We shouldn't have church folk. By the way, in case you don't know, there's an entire movement out there called the House Church. And I will tell you this. What I appreciate about that movement is their instinct, their impulse to kind of recover. Genuine New Testament Christianity. I appreciate that. But I think it's worth asking ourselves the question, is this what the book of Acts is communicating, that we are not to meet in church buildings, but that we are rather to meet in houses? It is true that the church met in houses. We're told this in chapters 2 and 5. The wealthy in those days had large courtyards within their house that lent themselves they would be, especially in the early days of the church. Sometimes even daily we see in houses. But let's be careful. The church did not always meet in houses. They met in a temple court. They met in a room, something like even some occasions that are recorded for us in the book of Acts that there was such a large group it's, it's reasonable to assume they weren't meeting in a house, it was too large a group but we don't really know where they were meeting, were they meeting outside were they meeting some large hall in town We don't exactly know why because Luke's point really is not where they met it's that they assembled that's Luke's point and so meeting in houses did happen in the early church, but it was by no means a a precedent. And that's really what I'm getting at. Does does this seem to be the setting of a precedent? Or is it intended to report what happened? And so this is why I put a lot more stock. This is what the church did intentionally as part of their church life. Any thoughts? Preaching. Okay, good. So the elements of the, of the worship, what was taking place. Good. Breaking the bread. Fourth table. Good. Baptism. Excellent. of a few kind of related yes sir. Okay, so I'm hmm, I understand. I understand what you mean. Yeah, good, good. So that kind of opposition to sin that they see. I also think of things like so in Acts 6, you have what? You have the the first deacons. There's a process that very specifically and deliberately it seems to me um, and so I think that's worth our consideration in fact I think that should probably follow that pattern because it is laid out so intentionally as part of the church's uh, churchyard in fact let me go one step further and say the choosing of the deacons is actually one example that I see of a larger pattern of congregation. Church at large. And so I think this would note, this is worth our notice, this is worth our notation. Baptism, something you mentioned, right? Both the recipients and the mode of baptism are shown in the book of Acts. Baptism follows belief. is constantly initiated by, supported by, and results in local churches. since Jesus rose. Let's meet and worship Jesus. Hey, it's been two weeks since Jesus and the pattern Doesn't mean that they have the binding authority that rises to the level of Scripture, but some traditions are actually predicated on the truth that we learn in Scripture. And so, some of these things that are precedent-setting, the apostles set the precedent. Probably should be continued to be followed. Now, there's one more principle, one more question that I think is more important than any other. Because heretofore, I've been basically telling you how Pastor V interprets the text. What have I not done yet? I haven't actually showed you in the Bible. Did you pick up on that? I haven't actually shown you from the text why I interpret the text this way. So what is really the most important question? Like the most important question when you're interpreting the book of Acts. say, let's go a little further, because, what's that? Exegesis, good, we're on the right path. Good, the Holy Spirit helps us to interpret the Word, and how does the Holy Spirit do it? Through the Word of God, good. Somebody, like, bring that home, like, make it really specific. I'm going to interpret the book of Acts in the light of what? the light of the scriptures, right what does the rest of the new testament specifically say are you with me this is comparing scripture with scripture and so i would say the most important question you say okay is this binding is this normative is this something that we should mimic you can't just take a proof text from the book of acts and run with it you got to ask yourself the question the rest of the New Testament set. Does that make sense? This is comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is Bible study. Okay, the first rule of, first three, rules of Bible study. first three rules of Bible study. Context, 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 right? Location, location, location. Right? You, cannot, you cannot be fair with Scripture you snatch it out of its context. So when we're thinking about the book of Acts, we're thinking about a historical snapshot of something that is unfolded, is unpackaged, is explained throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So really, the most important question that we want to think about as we are applying the book of Acts is, what does the rest of the New Testament say about it? Compare Scripture with Scripture. Alright, I'm going to give you case studies. Go over with me. You haven't gotten here yet, but go over with me to Acts 15. And look at verse 29. Now, this is actually repeated several times. This is the Jerusalem Council. The question is, what do Gentile believers need to do? Right, and this is kind of a case study in exactly what we're talking about. So in verse 29, Acts 15, the command is given to Gentile believers. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself free from business, you do well. Interesting. Okay? So, next week when you go to your deli, you're going to say, oh, So should you eat crickets? A perfect timing. According to this command, <laughs> it's a, it's a all right. So, so right. What 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 should we what should we eat? What should we not eat? What should we do? What should we not do? Here's this command given to us in verse 29. Now, of this, there's several bullet points, right? And the command to abstain from sexual immorality. Yes. Right? Jesus teaches it. The epistles reinforce it. Even the book of Revelation twice condemns sexual immorality. I mean, this is something that's pretty clear because it continues all throughout the New Testament. So is this an ongoing expectation for believers? Obviously. Okay, well, that's the easy one. What about... Now to come to the question of meat offered to idols, does that come up again in the New Testament? Yeah, what book? First Corinthians, right? Right. Paul actually spends several chapters on this question because this was a debate in the Corinthian church. Now, here's what's telling: when Paul addresses that for Corinthian believers, like six, eight years later, definitely. We Rather, he appeals to what? Their love for their fellow brother. And not causing someone to stumble. That's very telling. So, this tells me that what's happening here in Acts 15 is not intended to be binding forever. It was a temporary measure to maintain the peace between the Jewish. Acts 2, verse 14. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and the breaking of bread, which I take to do the Lord's Supper, and prayer. You may have noticed that when I preached Acts two forty-two, I preached all of those things as binding for New Testament believers, for us as a church, for us as individual believers. Why? Why did I preach it that way? Every one of those things are reinforced as you continue to the new testament, are not? Right? And so all of these are continuing. Here is much water. What hinders me from being baptized? was a body of water. It's significant that every time we see it occur in the book of Acts, it appears to be immersion. That's, that's significant. But that alone is not enough. That's actually the weakest argument. But what we see is that that pattern continues to be centered on the local church. In fact, really the entire development of the church in the world centers on local church establishment. I mean, even the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is written to seven churches, local assemblies. So I'm actually arguing that Acts is, in large part, normative. Much of Acts is binding follow, but the mere occurrence of something is not quite enough to bind it on the consciences of New Testament believers. There must be other spiritual reasons. But I want just for us to think in closing about one possible other category. Is it possible that there's actually another category? Something that is not mandated, but yet it is still more than just Might there be a category, in script, sorry, might this be wise or instructive, even if not? to go to a strategic city in many cases. Well, there was some wisdom in what Paul was doing. I wouldn't say that it quite rises to the level of the economy. God also sent Philip out to the backside of the desert to talk to one guy. Yet there is some strategy. no clear-cut, like, when this happens, you're supposed to have a prayer meeting. But is prayer ever a bad idea? And so in times of crisis, I think it it would be good for us to say, well, what did the New Testament church do in times of crisis? They got together and they prayed. And here's a controversial one. when it applies to a specific local congregation of the book of Acts. It's in the plural. Can I say in good conscience that it's a mandate for the New Testament church to always have a plurality of elders? No. Do I think it seems to be the biblically wise idea or the ideal? I would put it in that category. I, I thank God that God has brought Is a biblical idea. Not always possible, not always feasible, and I would say not mandated by scripture, but certainly wise. If you disagree with me, that's okay. Some of these things are judgment calls, but I'm just kind of telling you how I understand the text. Um, there are different modes of evangelism: public ones, private ones, and you can ones. So, so, I do think there is this category of, of wisdom that we can imitate things that we see that are done well in the, in the local church, right? So this is a Bible study on Bible study, and uh, a little bit different than unusual, and the reason I'm bringing it to you this week is because next week I want to say, okay, what lessons should we, what are the lessons we learn for the church from the book of Acts? What are the things that we can, as a church, think together about? And so some of that's predicated on. I would say this. Obviously, there is some some what latitude here. There's some judgment in how we apply the text. And so we do need to be gracious with brothers and sisters in Christ who might not always see it exactly as we do. Because so when we get into this category of, okay, what's mandated, uh, what's just simply wise, we're really in that zone of we've got to be gracious with one another. We have good brethren who practice a very different policy, a very different way of, of governing the church with whom we disagree and even have scriptural reasons for disagreeing with, but when we're in this when we're in this kind of window here of, of interpretation, I think it's good for us to give, give grace to those who are good brethren who don't quite see it as good. All right, so um, let's pause the recording.